energy. So the barber trims my beard all night, like an artist. Now, I didn't tell him to do that. I wanted the beard gone. So then I went home and shaved it off completely after I was done. I felt horrible. The passion. Rafael Devers is the biggest contract in franchise history. He needs to be a leader for this Red Sox team. The opinions on all your favorite teams. Are the Patriots close to playoff contention? Yes. Are they close to Super Bowl contention? Hell no. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome back here on a Wednesday on the Brady Farkas Show. Actually, with Brady Farkas here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Appreciate Lee Cattell filling in for me yesterday. Yesterday was... Uh, it was a very busy day for me. I had it pre-planned to be off for a while. I had a bunch of things going on. I won't get into it with all of you, but I was pretty disconnected most of the day yesterday. Disconnected from sports, disconnected from work, disconnected from the world. I do appreciate Lee hosting the show. I caught a very few minutes of it. I was finally done with the things I was doing around 5 o'clock last night. I caught a few minutes of Lee doing the show. He sounded great. He's a true professional. Again, I thank him for filling in. I did get over to the UVM game last night. Catamounts beat you all. We need to close out the regular season. So because I was busy all day and then I got to the UVM game, I didn't really follow much of anything yesterday. So, you know, the Flames game against the Bees where the Bees went in overtime, I didn't watch any of that. I was too busy at the UVM game. And then by the time I got home, game was almost over. So yesterday was a tough day for me. I'm happy to be back, though. I was busy last night from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., but I'm ready to go again here today. I'm Happy to be back with all of you. You can get on in on the Napa-Morrisville-Napa-Waterbury text line, 802-585-3026. This is a special show with a couple of different moving pieces to it. So, the UVM women's basketball game is going on right now in the America East playoffs. I am following that game. I'm watching it as we speak. We'll give you some updates throughout and kind of tell you what's happening. The Cats are up by 11 right now midway through the second quarter. So, I'll keep you posted on what's happening there. We've got a special two-guest show today. Very, very rare. Tom Karen Nesson is going to be with us in about 15 minutes. He's going to be with us at 545. But Buster Olney is going to be with us today at 630. So Buster can't join us tomorrow because of, uh, of he's doing a Red Sox game, ironically enough, for ESPN. So Buster will be with us at about 630. I already taped that interview. I'll play it back for you at that time. You're going to want to hear what Buster had to say and a lot of interesting things. On the Red Sox. The Brady Farkas Show, by the way, is brought to you by Fecto Homes. Let's get to it. Five, four, three, two, one. And here we go. And the opening thoughts of the Brady Farkas Show are brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and by Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Swanton Lumber. They're online at sticksandstuff.com. A texter already wants Lee to replace me and do the show permanently. Thank you. I am happy to be back as well. Again, Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line is open. 802-585-3026. I want to start with these very interesting comments the other day from Matt Barnes. Remember Matt Barnes, right? Longtime reliever for the Red Sox. Was very good at one point before falling off a cliff on the back half of 2021. So the team surprisingly designated him for assignment this winter. They eventually ended up trading him to the Marlins. 
Well, the Marlins and Red Sox played each other last night in spring training, and Barnes didn't go to the game. But before the game, he said this to the Boston Globe. He said about the Red Sox, I'm not mad, and I don't have any animosity toward the Red Sox organization because that organization represents so much more than who's currently running it. The people at the top were so great to me. That is a shot at Chaim Bloom. That is a shot at Chaim Bloom and a shot at no one else. When you hear those quotes, when you read those quotes, just know they are about one person, and that person is the chief baseball officer. I mean, look, Matt Barnes said, like, it's not easy, or it's not hard to read between the lines here. Matt Barnes said he loves the fans. He's got no problem with them. I just want to say thank you. You know, I, it was there were some ups and downs. Thank you for sticking with me, um, sticking with the team. Um, you know, we had some bad years mixed in there, but I think overall we did a pretty good job. Um, and we had some years that, that were pretty fun for everybody. So Matt Barnes loves the fans, had a nice message for them. So he's not ripping them. He says he has no animosity towards the people at the top. He says that the people at the top were so great to me. There, he's clearly talking about ownership, right? So the fans aren't the problem. The people at the top, the ownership group's not the problem. The only person left is high in Bloom because he didn't rip his teammates and he didn't rip his manager. Bloom's the only guy that's left. The, the organization represents so much more than who's currently running it. That's not good sentiment to be out there if you're high in bloom. And I'll be honest. At first, those comments didn't really raise red flags to me. Right? Being completely transparent. When I read those comments yesterday at a time when I finally got access to things, they didn't really raise a red flag to me. I thought, look, high in bloom is the guy that gave Matt Barnes his walking papers. Of course Matt Barnes is going to be upset. Of course he's going to be resentful. Of course he's not going to like him. I kind of, That kind of at first just struck me as standard operating procedure. But then I spoke to Buster Olney earlier today, and that interview is going to play at 6.30. And Buster reminded me, Brady, this isn't the first time we've heard players talk about Bloom and or his communication style. And that's, that is not a good reputation to have, Right? Xander Bogarts talked about not loving the messaging last year at the trade deadline, not going where the, not knowing where the organization was going. There was the Christian Vasquez stuff where he gets traded and he's kind of walking aimlessly around the field and nobody's there to talk with him. There's J.D. Martinez saying that he wasn't really communicated with this offseason. And now you have Barnes who clearly harbors a grudge at Bloom. That's not a good reputation to have. It's not a good reputation to have. At first, I thought Barnes was just exhibiting sour grapes, but then I talked to Buster, and I'm like, you know what? No, this is kind of a pattern that's out there with Bloom, and Bloom needs to fix this. High and Bloom is now in year four of, of running the Red Sox. He's got to fix this. This cannot be his reputation. Okay. 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023. This is year four. Like, this is starting to be like this is go time for him. You can't have this be your reputation. You can't have people be this bothered by your communication style or people who think your communication style is non existent. This, at the end of the day, is a P 
people business. I know it's big business. I know it's baseball, but it's not just fantasy baseball. Okay, Hyam Bloom is in the people business. He is in the relationship business. You can't do this job solely from behind a desk or from solely behind a computer. You just can't do it. I think Hyam Bloom knows baseball. I think he generally knows personnel. I think that he has a real good idea of how to build an organization for the long term. And I believe he's trying to execute that. But at the core of all of that is a people business. There are real human beings here. This is not just fantasy baseball. And those real human beings with those real human emotions have to be treated better by the people in charge. That's just the way that they, that's just the way that it is. That's how this goes. Right? High and Bloom, I don't think High and Bloom is trying to force out the guys he he inherited. I don't believe that. But it seems pretty clear to me that when High and Bloom is kind of done with you or has no use for you, he's pretty cold to you. And I understand in this business you do have to be a cold business person at times, but there are also people who deserve your respect. And Xander Bogarts deserves your respect. And Christian Vasquez getting traded last year deserves your respect. And J.D. Martinez this offseason deserves a phone call. And Matt Barnes, even if he fell off a cliff performance-wise, he helped win the World Series. You gave him a good contract. He deserves better than what he got. And this these guys are clearly resentful of Bloom and how he handles things, or at least confused by... At least confused... By Bloom. I mean, it's just, you, you can't have this be your reputation. You just can't. Texter says, uh, Lee would cringe at that. I think he means replacing me. Most everyone loves you. The spice, the small population of haters spices up the ratings. Well, thank you very much to uh, that texter. And look, I, I'm, I hope Lee doesn't want to replace me. I, you know, I like doing the show, and I need a job. So Lee's doing enough things. He doesn't need to take my show, too. But I will talk with him tomorrow and find out how he enjoyed doing it. There are a lot of people out there that say, oh, Brady, I can do what you do. I can be a sports talk host. I can do that. That doesn't sound like a hard job. I'd be curious how Lee, where Lee landed on that. I want to know if Lee ended up thinking this show was easier than he would have thought or if he would have thought if he came out more difficult than he would have thought. That That's what I'm genuinely curious about. Because everybody says they can do it. Some people can. And then some people fall flat on their face. I'd be curious what Lee thought of it. Now, he got through it. That's the first battle. The second battle is, did he think it was easy or did he think it was difficult? So, uh, good stuff there. But yeah, this high and bloom thing, man, it, it bothers me. It bothers me to hear this and you think that it's been a pattern. Again, when Bloom is done with you, he seems to be done with you. And guys deserve better than that in, in a lot of cases. Now, I think conversely, the guys that Bloom brings in, I bet you he absolutely loves. Kike Hernandez, Yoshida, those guys I bet he showers with praise. The guys who he's done with, they seem to get the short end of the stick. Um, Red Sox today, by the way, they played the Astros at spring training. The Marlins last night, Astros today, they tied 4-4. No big deal there on the tie. A couple of other interesting things here to note. 
Masataki Yoshida is heading back to Japan this week for the World Baseball Classic, so we will not see him at spring training anymore uh, for the foreseeable future. Japan figures to play very deep into this tournament. Heck, they might win the tournament, so they're going to be around for a while. Yoshida's not going to be back at Fort Myers maybe for like two and a half or three weeks, so he's going to go to Japan this week, start pool play there. I think pool play begins March 8th. So Yoshida, we got a small sack, uh, small sample size of him. One for six, a double, a sack fly, a couple of strikeouts and no walks. But, you know, obviously that's a small sample size. But Yoshida is a guy that the Red Sox need to be a big part of their team. And we're not going to see him anymore for a while. Red Sox played just a few regulars in this game. Casas, Arroyo, and Reese McGuire played. So not, not a whole lot to report from that one. Casas obviously had the homer yesterday, which is a good thing there against the Marlins. The best news of the day came outside of game action for the Red Sox. Chris Sales doing well in his bullpens and his live hitter work. He's going to make his Grapefruit League debut coming up on Monday. So good stuff there for Sale. And uh, finally, kind of the last thing, I'm really curious about the outfield situation for the Red Sox. And I'm going to ask Buster about some of this, too. Or I ask Buster about some of this. Again, that interview's already been done. But it, it is an interesting situation. The Red Sox have guys, it seems like, are four locks for the team. Yoshida, Verdugo, Duvall, and Ref Snyder, who's got a guaranteed contract. That leads me to believe there's not room for anybody else. But Jaron Duran's having a very good spring. And Raymond uh, Raymel Tapia went two for three today. And he's a guy with a long major league track record, Rockies and Blue Jays. He's on a playoff roster last year with the Blue Jays. I mean, would they cut Duvall and play Duran or Tapia? Would they cut Ref Snyder? Would they see Ref Snyder as more of a utility all-around player who can play in the infield now that Arroyo's a starter? I don't know. Maybe that's the plan. Maybe Ref Snyder is going to dovetail into the infield some more. And then we'll see... Uh, you know, Duran or Tapia make the team. I don't know. We will talk about it, though, with uh, Buster Olney at about 6.30. Right now, it's time for Tom Karen, our Red Sox and Bruins insider over at Nesson. So, uh, TC is on the phone line now. TC, thank you for being with us. How are you on this Wednesday? Doing well, Brady. How you doing? Excellent. I'm going to throw a little curveball at you today if you're ready for this. So, Buster only usually joins us on Thursday, but Buster can't join us tomorrow because he's doing the Red Sox game tomorrow against the Phillies. So, Buster's going to join us later in the show. As a result of that, I'm going to pivot and talk more Bruins with you and get completely out of my comfort zone. Okay, let's try it. I think they need to go 16-6 and over the remaining 22 games to finish with the most points in NHL history, and I'm still sitting here trying to figure out how this is happening, considering four months ago, five months ago, we were wondering if they could you know, even make the playoffs given all the injuries and the new coaching staff. Yeah, I mean, again, it's the new coaching staff, right? I mean, it all begins there. Jim Montgomery's a guy who has uh, sort of just uh, changed the atmosphere in the room, and we talked a lot about Bruce Cassidy. I'm a big fan of Bruce Cassidy. But, man, what a, what a good move by the Bruins to just change the voice. A guy who comes in and, and whether it's uh, his role in getting Krejci to come back or bringing the best out of the Jake DeBruff types, uh, give Don Sweeney full credit. He, you know, may, I, I criticized the move for Allmark a couple of years ago, thought Swayman was the guy who didn't need him. Uh, he's become one of the best goalies in the NHL. That was a good move. Uh, this was a, was a great deal at the deadline. 
uh, or before the deadline or at the deadline now, but but you add depth up front, you add depth on the D-line. I mean, they've been pushing all the right buttons since the beginning of the season. I understand the answer might just be as simple as they're hockey players, but why is load management not a term in the NHL? That's a great question, isn't it? Uh, and, and maybe it is because they're – their hockey players. Maybe it's because as hard as they go and as as much intensity as there is, you know, a shift is 50 seconds. I mean, it's a it's it's sprinting bursts with rest in between. And say which will, the NBA, you know, the best players are out there for the better part of the entire game. So maybe it's something to do with their ability to, to rest and recover. I do wonder if you might see a little bit of load management in a hockey way. Uh, down the stretch here, if you want to make sure that Bergeron and Krejci and Marshawn are all ready uh, come playoff times, uh, you, you can ease back off the throttle a little bit. But this doesn't feel like that type of team, does it? No, it doesn't. And and I guess how, how much of it is money-related also? Like, I understand how valuable these pieces are to the Bruins, but in the NBA, guys are making $35, $40 million a year. How much, how much does that factor in versus guys making $7 million a year? Oh, I, I honestly don't think it factors in within the decision-making of an organization. I think an organization looks at what it needs to do to win. I, I, I don't think, you know, Cam Neely and Don Sweeney are having conversations saying, yeah, we're only paying Bergeron this. Let's get him out there and make him play. Uh, I don't think it factors in. The, the way that, you know, the part of what factors in on the, on the financial side is that, you know, you don't have, you know, the, the 15-day contract that the NBA has where you can just bring a guy in every now and again. Uh, so the salary cap structure in the NHL is such that you're only, you know, only so many guys are active. And every time you activate a guy, it has ramifications on your salary cap uh, uh, hit. So uh, that could factor into it a little bit, I guess. Tom Karen, Bruins insider, Sox insider. We will get to some baseball momentarily, but another hockey question here for TC. The Rangers get Tarasenko from the Blues. They get Patrick Kane from the Blackhawks. They've already got Panarin, who's excellent. Very good goaltender. How much do you fear the Rangers in the Eastern Conference? I, I think the Rangers have really improved themselves. I, I think the Leafs have improved themselves with trades. I, I love this Eastern. I mean, you never sleep on the Lightning. I, I think that the Eastern Conference, uh, you, you've got about five teams that have gone all in, and I absolutely love it. And make no mistake, as good as they have been, uh, come the Stanley Cup playoffs, the pressure is squarely on the Bruins. You're going to post the best season in franchise or perhaps NHL history. You better win some games come the playoffs. And those early playoff games where nothing is a given, uh, they're going to be dealing with the pressure that they haven't felt all season. So I, I think it's going to be a really intriguing playoff run for the Bruins. TC, I don't know how in tune you are with the Hockey East women's uh, game, but just kind of pointing out to you today that the UVM women are in the Hockey East semifinals against Providence. If they win, they'll likely face the uh, juggernaut of uh, Boston University for a chance to get to the NCAA tournament. Pretty cool here for the Catamount women to kind of come from obscurity within the last few years and steadily build this thing to a point where they've been nationally ranked all year, and here they are playing for a spot in the Hockey East finals. Yeah, I have followed them. It's, it is great for the sport. I, I love that, you know, the, the old days of, of Northeastern and Harvard and, and BU being juggernauts and, and everybody else being in the sort of second class uh, is no longer the case. Uh, UVM uh, has a terrific program running right now. Uh, you know, 
uh, what we've seen, BC, what that used to be a doormat, is now a really good program. You've got schools like Holy Cross that, that don't have great records but, but have uh, now built something that is going to be uh, a contender in the future. The women's game, for a long time, I, you know, I did the first ever Hockey East Women's Championship years ago, play-by-play. Providence won the first couple of those. And, and I remember just talking about the skill level improving, but you still had a very short list of really good programs in the women's game. Harvard, Providence, back then uh, uh, Brown was, was a juggernaut under Digit Murphy. And now uh, it's, it's not quite to the men's side in depth, but it's getting much closer where you've got, you know, five, six teams in every conference that really can make a run deep. And that gets deeper every year, and that's great for the women's sport. All right, let's talk about the Red Sox. And the Red Sox played the Marlins yesterday, and a guy that wasn't there was Matt Barnes, the former Red Sox reliever. And Barnes came out the other day with uh, with some comments that are raising eyebrows. They seem like a shot at high and bloom, T.C., yeah, they did. I, I talked to him last night and, and, you know, clearly still shocked by what happened. Uh, said it took him time uh, in this offseason to really come to grips with it and get himself refocused to come. Usually guys at this point in their career are used to the business side, but he's been 12 years in the Red Sox organization and now is getting a taste of the business side of it really for the first time. Uh, comments, you know, he, he went out of his way to talk about Brian O'Halloran and Eddie Romero and, and Raquel Ferreira, the assistant general managers, but absolutely didn't mention High and Bloom and made a shot about the organization is more than the people who are running it. Uh, you know, he didn't stick around for the game last night. I talked to him. He said, I, I, you know, I don't need to be here and be rah-rah against them. Uh, we'll do that in June when we come to Fenway Park. So he got his workout done in the afternoon and got out of there quickly. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it's still pretty raw. Uh, it was no doubt about that uh, when talking to Matt Barnes last night. Tristan Casas homered yesterday. Tristan Casas is a more interesting guy even than I realized. There was the interesting story that came out uh, last week in Mass Live from Chris Cotillo about how he clashed last year with some of the Red Sox veterans. We know he's, you know, he likes to sunbathe before the games. He's got his pregame nap routine. Now he's got his nails painted. Interesting guy, this Tristan Casas. Yeah, very different guy, very unique, uh, I think in a good way. Uh, this is the kind of guy that baseball never would have allowed to flourish 20 years ago. Uh, the veterans absolutely would have crushed a guy like this. And, you know, I talked to him a little bit about it. I had a really good conversation with Alex Verdugo about it, another guy, you know, who likes to show his style and, and have a little bit of flair. And, and he said, you know, baseball has done a good job of, of creating space for, for young guys, uh, as we know. We live in a different world. Everybody marches to the beat of their own drum, and we try to embrace that in society. Uh, baseball's been a little slower to embrace change, but but in the case of Tristan Casas, you know, they, uh, Cora was quick with us to, to dismiss the, the part of the, the Chris Cotillo article that said that it was an issue with his teammates. He said it wasn't an issue with the teammates, but you know, can't be napping in the middle of the, the, the clubhouse while the team is getting ready to go. They've got a nap room set up in the back, Oh, take a nap there. You know, he made a joke that you can't lay out in right field <laughs> to, to sunbathe at Fenway. So he said, go do it up on the Coca-Cola deck. And it was a great line by Corey. He said, that's closer to the sun anyway, so you <laughs> might as well go up there. Uh, I, you know, Corey's a good guy at deflecting uh, and, and, you know, uh, kind of uh, scaling back on controversy. I think he did a really good job of, of making this a positive, even though the, 
the piece that Chris did made it sound like there was a controversy going on. TC, let me get you out of here on a broadcasting logistics question. I've been fascinating or fascinated rather by watching various broadcast teams and how they've handled the pitch clock. Uh, some broadcast teams put it up in the corner of their scoreboard like a shot clock. Other broadcast teams don't put it up at all. I haven't noticed the pitch clock yet be a part of the Nesson score bug. Is that something we're going to see come in the season? Or are you guys going to make it seem like baseball as usual? Yeah, so we're playing around with it. You'll definitely see it in some way during the season. Uh, the difference is in a lot of these uh, broadcasts down here, we're not the only ones there. We don't during regular season, the major league ballparks, we're essentially, to dumb it down, we, we are sort of hardwired into the scoreboard, right? So we can just incorporate their clock. That doesn't happen in these spring training ballparks. So we actually have to have a camera on the scoreboard and then superimpose our camera feed of the, you know, it, it's just ah. not clean. Um, so that it's really not about what we do or don't think we should do. It's just right now what's technically, we, we can't dedicate one of our cameras to the scorebook the whole game. So uh, we're playing around with some things right now. You'll see it in some way during the regular season. Not, you know, not giving away trade secrets, but I, I think we're right now leaning towards the maybe we bring it in with 10 seconds left. You know, you don't need to be counting down from 20, I don't think, with man on base. But I think, you know, when you get to 10, that's when the action starts, right? The catcher's got to be in at 9, the batter's got to be in at 8, and then the pitcher's got to deliver. So, I, you know, we're going to play around with some things. And you'll, <clears throat> excuse me, you'll see us try some different things uh, over the course of spring training and see what works. So we're getting feedback from fans. Uh, it's just, you know, listen, we're, we're a week in. I absolutely love it. The pace of play is unbelievable. The, the, the guys seem to be adapting to it pretty well. Uh, we had that, you know, bizarre thing in, in uh, against Atlanta where we had the, walk, the, the clock off yeah. by game, uh, <laughs> to end it. Uh, and, you know, last night, Kevin Euclid during our broadcast was speculating, like, <clears throat> how do you score it? We had a strike three on a violation last night. Is it a backwards K? I mean, he didn't swing, uh, but he wasn't looking because the pitch was never thrown. Jason Baratek texted in and said, maybe you go a K with a circle, so you got the circle K. Uh, but, but these are, you know, there's all these little ramifications that are playing themselves out over the month of spring training, but I think – you know, the feedback I've gotten from fans, and there are certainly fans who don't like it. They think we're, the game is being thrown on its, on its head. Uh, but I'm hearing that they find it to be a much more compelling product. It's, 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 it's quick action. The pitchers are dealing. The action comes quick. We've got a lot of runs and a lot of hits, and, and these games are being played in, you know, two and a half, two hours and 45 minutes, more on par with an NBA or, or an NHL game. Uh, so I, you know, I think by the time we break camp in a month, and, and we're in March now, there'll be a Major League Baseball game that matters played this month for the Red Sox. Uh, I, I think these guys will have it figured out to the point where we're not talking about it quite as much. But a weekend, it's been spectacular. If the pitcher, or if there's a violation, does the pitcher get charged with a pitch on his overall pitch count? I, it's a great question, and I asked somebody that the other day, and I haven't gotten an official answer yet. <laughs> I assume not, right? Because he didn't throw the pitch. What happens I mean, now like, when they do the intentional walk? I guess it would be the same thing. Does a guy get four pitches thrown and four balls yeah, thrown? And and he does not. Okay. He does not get called for the four pitches. So there you go. Uh, that's probably. But I, I, it's a great question, and I keep forgetting to ask the right people at the right time. <laughs> I was just I'm throwing around when I'm up in the press box. I'm doing play by play for our games this weekend, and I, I will have an. I promise you, Saturday when we do the game against the Astros. I will have an answer of that question. So tune in and I'll, I'll answer it on the air.
TC, much appreciated. Looking forward to more Red Sox coverage. Thanks for the bees' help today, and we'll talk in seven days. Sounds good. Thanks, Brad. Absolutely. There goes our guy Tom Karen, Red Sox and Bruins insider at Nesson here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV. Brought to you by Fecto Homes. I always love talking with TC. And yeah, the pitch clock stuff there at the end, it's kind of nerdy in the weeds, baseball fandom. But I am curious about it. So it is good to see that TC says Nesson will show the pitch clock. It is part of the game. But... You know, is it going to be there for the whole time? Is it going to be there just the last 10 seconds? Kind of waiting to see on that. And I'm going to ask Buster Olney the same thing about what they plan to do on the national side of things. I have not watched an ESPN game yet this year. But uh, the Casas stuff is interesting. Good stuff there about baseball kind of opening its, you know, opening itself up. I guess now baseball has gotten diverse in terms of cultures and the people involved in the game and more women in the game. But, you know, diversity of thought, diversity of allowing young players to be themselves, that has been kind of stunted for a while, and maybe now it's opening up more. Verdugo affirmed that. Casas getting it to be a little bit more of himself as well. And finally, I do wonder about the load management thing in hockey. I mean, really, hockey and basketball are the same sport in terms of length of season, amount of games played, and load management is not a thing in hockey. Maybe it just is as simple as hockey players are tougher. Maybe it's what TC says. Hockey shifts are shorter. Guys can recover faster. and They don't need it as much. Maybe that's it too. But I wonder how NHL players look at basketball. Do they look at these guys like they're weak? Or do they look at these guys like, man, I envy that. That guy doesn't have to play today. Man, I wish I could do that. That guy doesn't have to play when he's banged up. I wish I could do that. And if the NBA gets games lopped off their season. If the NBA goes from 80, you know, 82 games to to 70 games, do NHL guys look at it and say, I'd like that? I don't know. UVM women's basketball about to start the second half in the America East tournament first round. I'll tell you what's happened to this point next on DEV. 96.1. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. The show brought to you in part by Fecto Homes. Uh, coming up tonight on DEV, reminder, Jazz with George Thomas is on after me for one hour. Then it's high school basketball. Girls Division II semifinals, Fairhaven and Spalding with our coverage again at 8 o'clock. And the tip-off is at 8.15. The UVM women's basketball team is playing in their quarterfinal round right now the America East Tournament. That game's being played as we speak at Patrick Gym. It started at 5 o'clock. The reason it started early is because the UVM women's hockey team is also playing tonight. That's a 7.30 start at the gut. So because of all the parking and facility usage they elected to, and also maybe the fans wanted to go to both games, they have accommodated for that. UVM is the top seed. They are beating the eighth-seeded Bryant Bulldogs right now, 39-29. to Now, the Cats just played Bryant. They just beat this team by 23, and right now it's a 10-point game. We are at seven minutes left in the third quarter. And there's a couple of different thoughts here on this. There's the thought that says it's the one seed against the eight. You just beat them by 23. Why are you not beating them by more? And there's the thought that says... You just played this team. You know each other well. It's probably understandably closer this time around. I tend to land in that camp. UVM should win this game. They are the one seed. They are the regular season conference champs. They are playing the eighth seed. But I don't think that they have to beat them by as much or more than they just did. 
You just saw this team. This team comes in with no pressure, comes in with nothing to lose. You just saw each other. You know who each other is now. I think if UVM wins this game by double figures, then I'll be happy. If this game ends up being a six-point victory, well, then we'll talk differently tomorrow. But if they win this game by 10 to 14, I will be satisfied. They don't have to beat this team by 23 again just because that's what they did the other day. They are up 10 right now. And here's the other thing, too. I don't think UVM has been nervous. And and that's a really good sign. And I didn't think they would be nervous, but there's always the potential. And it's been kind of the question that Elisa Kresge and her team have fielded all week. How will you handle this? This is a new scenario for the UVM women. The UVM women, and the whole time I've been here, have never had the target on their back. So now you have the target on your back. You have the expectations. You're no longer the surprise team. You are no longer the Cinderella. You are now the hunted. And that is new. How would you handle that? It's a fair question. And you're playing at home. And with that comes a degree of pressure. But I don't think UVM has wilted. I thought UVM played with a lot of pressure all season. Going 0-2 to start was pressure. Uh... Having a 14-game win streak, you have to sustain. That's pressure. Having a having the, the regular season title decided on the last day and you are have everything to play for, that, that is pressure. I think UVM is, I'm not going to say immune to pressure, but I think they have built up a good exterior to pressure. I think they are a tough team. And because they're only up 10, I don't think it's because they are nervous. I think this game looks like a UVM women's basketball game should look. And uh, eight players have played, nine players have played for UVM, eight have scored. So good balance and good depth. Ten from Emma Utterback right now, six from Bella Vito, six from Anna Olson, five from Delaney Richardson. Kat Gilwee, the CVU product, has five points. So right now it's a good all-around effort by this Catamount team. They were up 12 at the break. They're up 10 right now. Again, win it by 10 to 14, maybe 15. And I'll be thrilled. I'm not going to judge this team for winning this game by 12 points. They don't have to win it by 20 as far as I'm concerned. And I really want this team to win this game. And they should win this game. And I really want to go to the American East Conference semifinals, which would be on Sunday. So the conference semis would be on Sunday. So we uh, we hope to see the Catamounts there at Patrick Jim again on Sunday afternoon. I think, I think it would be a noon start. Am I remembering that correctly? I'll have to get back to you on that. Let me see if that's right or not. But, um, you know, this this program deserves it. They've built. They've struggled. They struggled with COVID. They opted out. They deserve to have this, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I want to see them get to the semifinals on their home floor. It would be Sunday at 1. Sunday at 1 would be the semifinals. So, uh, good stuff there for the Catamount women. We will continue to keep you updated, 545 left in the third quarter. Remember, they play quarters, not halves on the women's side. UVM up by 10. All right, let's get to the men's side of things where UVM beat Albany last night in a game I was at. Final score was 79-61. Catamounts finished the America East regular season at 14-2. They get the 20th win overall, so 20-10 inside league play, or 20-10 overall. 14 and 2 inside league play. They'll go into the conference tournament, which begins on Saturday night. Winners of 12 consecutive games. They are rolling. They are favorites in that tournament. No doubt about it. I really liked last night's game. And to be there 
was really fun. I don't get to go to a ton of UVM games because of this show, right? Because they've started 7, and I don't get off the air until 7 o'clock a lot of times, so it's hard for me to go. Yesterday, I was able to go because I was off. I thought it was a good test for UVM. Albany came in. They had nothing to lose. They were playing with total freedom. They're the, they're in last place. They're not very good. They're playing out the string. They had the ability to just come in and try to punch you in the mouth and do different things and get under your skin. And UVM didn't fold. They didn't wilt. They responded. And they kept their composure. And they ended up winning that game by 18. Albany played hard. And they played irritating in a good way. They, they tried to do things to be a nuisance. And UVM responded. Business-like approach. It got a little hairy at one point. I think UVM was only up eight in the second half. But they ended up winning it by 18. And uh, yeah, every time Albany would have some momentum, UVM found a way to swat it away. And I, I just thought it was a, a good test once more before the American East Conference Tournament. And the Cats are going to take on uh, NJIT in that game on Saturday night at 7. Another reason why I loved last night's game, it was the return once again of what I am calling opening night Aaron. Aaron Deloney was so good last night. And it was so fun to watch him play that way. When Aaron Deloney plays like he did last night, this is a totally different team. It's a much more dangerous team. It's a much more well-rounded team. It's a team that gets scoring off of its bench. A team that has scoring that can come in bunches. And a guy that can do so many things overall for your ball club. Deloney for three. That's good. That's a heat check right there. Aaron Deloney coming off that little handoff. I mean, Deloney, when he is like that, when he is on, he is one of the more dynamic players, not only on this team, but in this league. He goes four of five from three yesterday. He goes six of seven from the floor, period. I know that's not realistic every night, but he has that ability in him. And when he does that, it is such a luxury for this team, and they are so much better, and they are so much more dangerous. I mean, the shooting ability that he has, that's great. The points you get off of his shooting ability, that's huge. But when Aaron Deloney shoots like that, you have any idea how many other things that opens up? When Deloney shoots like that, it stretches out the entire defense. Now they've got to pull away from the basket and go to the three-point line and guard him. And when they do that, well, then the lane becomes more open and your slashers like Dylan Penn have an easier time. Your post players like Nick Fiorillo or Robin Duncan have an easier time. Your kind of combo players like Finn Sullivan have an easier time. When Aaron Deloney is shooting that way, the defense pulls out on him. What is he able to do? Well, now he's able to take advantage of your over-aggression, and now he goes to the basket. And Deloney got to the basket a couple of times yesterday, had a couple of good looks, got an and one, finished at the rim. I love when Deloney plays like this because when he does, he is so, so good, and they are so much better. They are so much better. He is not just a shooter. He has the ability to just light it up from deep. And then when you try to stop that, well, then he just goes by you. And his teammates have an easier chance of going by you. It's a really good luxury for this team. And also, you're starting to see as a whole with this team, you are seeing what was lacking early in the year. Remember early in the year, 
the conversation for me, from me, was what? Finn Sullivan and Dylan Penn need to take over. Why? Because no one else can. We're at the point now where other people can and are and are doing it fairly regularly. I still think Finn Sullivan's the player of the year. Don't get me wrong. But we're at the point now where I can see five different guys carrying this team in a tournament game. I can see Finn Sullivan leading the way with 18 points. I can see Dylan Penn leading the way with 18 points. I can see Deloney doing what he did yesterday for 18 points. I can see Matt Verretto, who had 17 yesterday and 20 against Bryant. I can see him leading the team in scoring. And I can see Robin Duncan getting 15 with eight rebounds and being the best player on the floor. Earlier in the year, that wasn't the case. Earlier in the year, UVM needed Penn and Sullivan. And that's why I challenged is the wrong word, but that's why I maintained that this team needed those two. But now, this team doesn't necessarily need those two. They can still get huge performances from those two, but they can also get huge performances from everybody else. And that's what we're hoping for, and that's what we're looking for, and that's what we're seeing. Depth scoring for this team is now significantly better than it was earlier in the year. Penn can get 20. Sullivan can get 20. Verretto can get 20. We've seen all of them do it. Deloney can get 20. And Duncan can carry you in a lot of different ways, too. This is this is good stuff for UVM. They are humming right now heading into the conference tournament. It's not a given that they're going to win it. It's never a given. They're, UMass Lowell could be a really good final as the number two seed. Bryant we could see again somewhere down the road. I mean, there, there are teams that can give UVM trouble. But right now, they are humming. And you should be excited about what's happening in Catamount Country, both men and and women. The women, by the way, are up 12 now, 43-41, to 41, four minutes to play in that uh, third quarter. And Catherine Gilwee uh, and company have the ball right now. Gilwee for three. No, she pump faked it. Here I am trying to give you a little watch television, give you the play-by-play. But uh, again, they're there now. Gilwee shoots the three and hits it. And the Cats are up 15. And there you go. Right? Like, if they just do this. 46-31, if they just play even the rest of the way, I'm more than good with what has happened here. I am more than good with what has happened. Uh, back to the UVM men. Last night was senior night, and it was a pretty special night. The Cats honored four seniors, okay? Cam Gibson, Duncan, Sullivan, and Penn. Really nice, really tasteful, really well-done ceremony. I got to say, I'm a big softie. Senior nights always get me emotional. Now, I lived through my own senior night. I lived through my brother's senior night. I've lived through all my teammates' senior nights. They still, to this day, 10 years, 12, 11 years removed from my last meaningful athletic event, still senior nights get me emotional. And I think what it is is the appreciation that the players get from the crowd, the connection that players get from the crowd, that's what gets me. The ovation for all four seniors last night was incredible, but the ovation for Robin Duncan, that was outstanding. His introduction brought the house down. A genuine love for Robin Duncan exists in Catamount Country. It's actually a genuine love for a couple of different things. It's a love for the Duncan family who have produced Everett Duncan, Ernie Duncan, and Robin, and... You have three players that have spanned, you know, a decade in Catamount Country. The fans appreciate that connection and their love for the program. 
the fans appreciate Robin Duncan, who's played the most games in program history. I think they appreciate the history of it, the, the commitment to it, the coming back for a fifth year, the longevity, the health, all of it. And then they appreciate Robin Duncan, just the player who plays his heart on every game. And this team would be nowhere without him. Okay, there's a lot. I've said Finn Sullivan, I believe, is the player of the year because I think it's a stat-based award. But Robin Duncan, is he is the most valuable player on this team, and I think the crowd recognizes that too. And it was fun to hear Aaron Deloney after the game talk about the entirety of the senior class. And I could talk about them all day. I love those four guys. Uh, Dill, you know, he came this year, um, and he just fit right in with us. Great guy on and off the court. Amazing player. I think our games complement each other. Yeah. Scores a lot inside. I can do the outside. Finn and Cam, both my brothers, man, came uh, at the beginning of last year and just fit in, like I said, with Dill. Immediately play, plays their roles uh, perfectly uh, night in and night out. And Robin, you know, is our everything. We continue to say it, and he does his job on and off the court. Best leader we've had. Best leader we've had. That's high praise. Right? That's high praise there from Aaron Deloney. And you know what I also really love about the senior class? To Deloney's point is how well and how quickly they have gelled. Think about this. This Vermont team, those seniors, they didn't all come up through the program together. Three of those four just kind of landed here. Just kind of were in and out quickly. Again, they didn't come up through the program together. Dylan Penn, Finn Sullivan, Cam Gibson, they had their own resumes before they got to UVM. They had their own statistics, their own stories, their own accomplishments. They put all that aside. They just played ball, and they did it together, and they did it quickly. Cam Gibson and Finn Sullivan got here last year and were able to assimilate. Dylan Penn gets here this year and is able to assimilate, and then Duncan had been here forever. But this is a different team than years past. I mean, last year's team, Ben Shungu, Ryan Davis, Isaiah Powell, they, they grew up together. Some of them came in together. They left together. They went through four or five years together. I mean, those guys, that, that's a Vermont team we're used to seeing, where guys come in as freshmen and grow and grow and grow. This team didn't have time to really grow. They just had to come in and, and, and produce, and they've been able to do that for the most part. I mean, this class deserves a lot of credit. Okay, And the coaching staff deserves a lot of credit because chemistry is not easy to build. And they found a way to build it and build it quickly. Right? They found a way to build it and build it quickly. Credit to the players, credit to the leaders, credit to the coaching staff for doing that and for bringing in guys that can assimilate that quickly. And uh, this, this class had really great accomplishments. I mean, think about what this class accomplished. Two straight America East titles. I think Robin Duncan's been a part of maybe four regular season titles. Two 1,000-point scores happened on their watch. Dylan Penn got, or uh, Finn Sullivan got it this year. So did Cam Gibson. Duncan's played the most games in program history. It's good stuff. And I'm going to miss this group. Again, it is not a typical Vermont team in that some guys are just, you know, Coach Brennan calls them the hired guns. So you don't have as much of an attachment to everyone except for Duncan. But I, I, I still think this is a very fun and likable group. And it's been a group that has that deserves credit for gelling for overcoming what happened earlier in the season. It's it's been a fun run with a fun team. And I talked about 
I talked with Freddie Coleman today as well, right? Freddie Coleman of ESPN Radio is always with me on Wednesday. Today's interview is online only. But I talked more with Freddie kind of about this stuff, and I think I might bring it to your attention tomorrow or possibly Friday. Uh, Mark in South Hero missed my son's senior season and senior night. Uh, hockey Wesleyan after the NESCAC championship his junior year had to miss senior year because of COVID. I'm still mad that I missed that senior year. Yeah, that would be horrible. You miss your son's senior night because no fans and COVID? That would be absolutely terrible. Senior night always makes me emotional. Like literally, I'm not even joking. I was ready to tear up yesterday when I saw Robin Duncan come out. Like I almost lost it. 33-year-old guy. He's not my family member. I'm sitting on press row last night about to lose it because I see Robin Duncan get the standing ovation. It was beautiful. Every year, senior night does this to me, no matter where I am, but especially UVM. Uh, Catamounts and NJIT. But remember, that's an NJIT team, by the way, that gave UVM all it could handle a week and a half ago. UVM had to win that game in overtime, 82-80. to 80. So that's, a, that's not an easy first matchup. I've seen matchups here where UVM will take on Maine in the first round and win it by 40. NJIT could present some problems. Now, I think UVM will win the game handily. I think that NJIT kind of did all it could when they played at their place two weeks ago. I don't think they can replicate that. So I think UVM wins that game pretty easily. But just because I think it doesn't mean it's going to happen. NJIT has shown they can give them problems. And NJIT has done it. And NJIT has some belief that they can play with this team. I think UVM will squash that early. But it's not one that I would be taking lightly. You have to come focus for sure. UVM women are coming up on the end of the third quarter. There's 20 seconds to play here. And uh, there's 18 on the shot clock. I imagine UVM will wait for close to the last shot here. But... Uh, I'll tell you what happens before I get to commercial break. The Cats are up eight right now, 46-38, and uh, Anna Olsen just missed a shot inside. We've got a whistle, a jump ball. I think it's going to stay with the Catamounts. So UVM is up 46-38 to with five seconds to play. They'll get the ball. Again, I said UVM's got to you know, win it by double digits, and I'll be happy. But right now we're at eight. This is one that's going to come down to the wire, and we'll see how UVM finishes. This will be... See, three-point shot in the corner. Paula Gonzalez, no. So we'll go to the fourth, tied up eight. Now it will be interesting. This is where the nerves will come into play. Because I said all along, I don't think this UVM women's team will have nerves coming into the matchup. They have played with pressure. Now, this is where nerves might come in. You are the home team. You are only beating the eight seed by eight points, a team you just beat by 23. You have the expectations. You are the favorites. This is now where do you tighten up or do you extend? Bryant has nothing to lose. They could get this thing to four within the first 30 seconds of the fourth quarter, or UVM could get it to 12 and start to run away with it. Which way is this going to go? I'll keep you posted on it throughout the next half hour. Buster Olney of ESPN cannot join us tomorrow. Just can't. Buster's doing the Red Sox game tomorrow for ESPN as they take on the Phillies. So as a result, Buster had to join us today. I spoke with Buster earlier. We'll talk some Red Sox baseball, and we'll do it next with Buster only on ESPN, well, of ESPN, 
You're on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com, presented by Fecto Home. Than Brady does, text in with your thoughts at 802-585-3026. All the insight into everything going on in baseball. It's time for our weekly conversation with ESPN Baseball Insider and Vermont native, Buster Olney. I'm just about ready to bet the family farm in Vermont. On the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show, right here on this Wednesday on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Different Wednesday for us today, a multi-guest Wednesday, and the reason being is that we're talking today, a day early, with our ESPN MLB insider Buster Olney. Buster can't be with us tomorrow, reason being he'll be watching the Red Sox tomorrow in person for ESPN, so he's with us today. Buster, how are you? I'm doing great. Yeah, getting fired up for that game and, uh, you know, seeing uh, seeing the Red Sox in person and, and seeing if there's reason for Alex uh, Cora's hope. When you go see the Red Sox tomorrow, what is what are going to be the things that you're looking for? It's going to be your first time seeing the Sox this spring. What do you want to What do you want to find out? So, I mean, first and foremost, I want to watch Yoshi to hit right, but I'm not going to have an opportunity to do that tomorrow. We got the lineup ahead of time. He's not uh, not going to be available, and and so that that was kind of a bummer. I'm curious about Alex Verdugo. Uh, and the condition that everybody's talked about, you know, put eyes on him. Because one of the advantages in my job is, you know, to, to get a before and after with a lot of players. And, you know, after hearing uh, what they told him and understanding how important his ability to drive the ball is going to be to the, for the lineup this year, I'm going to be really curious about what I see in him. I'm going to be curious about, you know, conversation with Kenley Jansen. They're closer. Yeah. And, and him adapting to these new rules and, and what their feel on it is. And I am, generally speaking, curious about, you know, if this team has developed sort of this collective chip on their shoulder because of all the, you know, the negativity around the team, the criticism of the front office, and how that's filtered down to the players. Well, a lot of what you just said are things that are on my list of questions. So let me go back to Yoshida for a second, who you're unfortunately not going to see tomorrow. But I think one of the more interesting developments this spring is – the conversation on where he's going to hit in the batting order. You know, yes. when when they first signed him, I just assumed he was a middle-of-the-order player. Then we were told he was a leadoff guy, and now Alex Cora is kind of going back to the idea of him being a middle-of-the-order guy. It seems like they want to hit Devers second, and Yoshida's going to get a lot of run in that cleanup spot, potentially. Well, and Devers has said to Alex Cora uh, that he prefers to hit second, and you know what? You got a guy that you invested over three hundred million dollars in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's got a track record in the major leagues. That's the guy. If I'm an Alex position, that I want to please the most. He's the guy who I want to put in the most comfortable position. And so, right out of the gate, if that's what Dever says, then then I'm following that. You know, one of the options that they have potentially is to put uh, Yoshida and Devers one and two in their lineup. But you're not going to go back-to-back lefties. Yeah. I just don't think that's possible. You could go one and three, but then you get away from Devers you know, hitting two. So this, to me, is the, the logical resolution of that. You, you let Devers hit where, where he's most comfortable. You put him at two. Uh, you know, uh, Yoshida, you put in the number four spot. I think that that's the way Alex had to go, given what he's, the, the feedback he's gotten from the players and the fact that you do want to split up your left-handed hitters. And I guess in that case, to me, it seems like Justin Turner is the logical three-hitter and Kike Hernandez just goes back to, to leadoff like he was in 2021, potentially. 
Yeah, and it, and it does underscore you know how important Justin Turner is for this lineup. Uh, you know, there are times in recent years that he would hit in that spot in the lineup but, uh, for the Dodgers, but the Dodgers had so much depth that it never really felt like it was absolutely crucial that Turner was hitting. For this Red Sox team this year, with how the, the lineup feels thin in the bottom half, it's going to be absolutely essential that, you know, that they get 140 games out of Justin Turner. Buster Olney, ESPN, MLB Insider with us here in the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Uh, I asked Tom Karen of Nesson about this earlier in the show, but what did you make of Matt Barnes's comments the other day? He said that he loves the Red Sox fans, he has no ill will towards the people at the top, and they don't basically represent the people currently running the show. That seems like a not-so-thinly-veiled shot at High and Bloom and High and Bloom only. And it's reflective of of what uh, you and I talked about so often last year, that it did feel like that there's this absolute disconnect between the you know the front office and the players. Whether or not that's actually true, I don't know. But this week, you had the comments from Barnes, you had the comments from uh, Xander Bogart, mm-hmm. feeling like the you know the initial offer that he got was he didn't use the word insulting, but you read between the lines of what he said, that was clearly the case. He also said out loud what you and I speculated upon a year ago, that if the Red Sox had been aggressive out of the gate with their initial offer, Bogarts probably is still with the Red hmm. Sox. Um, all of that, you know, and then what we saw at the trade deadline with Christian Vasquez. And Vasquez, you know, sort of walking around wondering what's going on. It really did feel like all last year that there was a disconnect between the front office and the players. And Heim... Whether Heim believes that's the case or not, he, he needs to you know absorb the feedback and make adjustments, that's for sure. As another kind of under-the-radar storyline this spring, Jaron Duran's putting together a nice first couple of games here for the Red Sox, and we'll see how he does in the World Baseball Classic, and I'm sure that will matter too. But I look at the Red Sox outfield, Verdugo, Yoshida, and Duvall. Rob Ref Snyder's on a guaranteed contract. That's four outfielders there. Do you think there's a path for Duran to make this team, or is he a depth piece or a possible trade piece? I, I really do think there's a path for him to make it, and that is by playing well. Um, they've always believed in the physical talent. You know, they've always believed this guy was a dynamic, uh, you know, player potentially who could have a big impact. And if he makes that happen, given the Red Sox situation, absolutely they'll play him. Mm-hmm. So Alex Cora, above all else, is competitive. And, you know, he might like Adam Duvall personally. He might like, you know, other guys they have in the outfield. But if Jared Duran is playing better than other people, Alex is going to play them. Just to double back, by the way, on the I, I just want to finish up a little bit on Bloom and, yeah. and, and my thoughts on that. Uh, look, there are a lot of times when you can feel like the media is a little bit out of step with what's going on between, you know, front offices and players. But in this case, the comments that are being made are not by me or Dan Shaughnessy. They're being made by players and respected guys, uh, you know, like Xander Bogart. And that's part of the reason why I think Haim really needs to absorb the, you know, what's being said and, and to, to listen to it and to, you know, to make adjustments. What's interesting, too, is that when I first heard the comments, I thought, well, this doesn't surprise me, right? Haim Bloom's the guy that hands you your pink slip. You're going to have resentment towards him. So I kind of just brushed off the Matt Barnes comments at first. But, you know, upon talking to TC and upon talking to you, 
it really is painting the idea that Hyam Bloom needs to be a little bit better of a people person with the guys in the organization. Which is what we saw last year and what you and I talked about yeah, right. you know, uh, repeatedly, that they just felt like that you know, the, the relationship following the Xander Bogarts offer, the situation and the unhappiness in the clubhouse became cancerous. Um, and I really do think it had an impact in 2022. I can't wait to see the Dodgers, you know, and have a conversation with J.D. Martinez, who had a terrible second half. I've always thought J.D. was someone who, uh, you know, really benefited from him having a, from a, a positive atmosphere. And, and I wonder how much of an impact that all had on him. And, and the players are giving voice to what you and I talked about often last year. It was interesting you mentioned J.D. Martinez, and I don't know if you saw this. I only read the comments. I didn't listen to it, but he was on the uh, the Brad Foe Show podcast with uh, Rob Bradford over at WEEI, and he said that you know he wasn't quite sure where the Red Sox were at with him, but basically he got wind that they were going after Justin Turner, and so that's why he ended up accepting the doc, the Dodgers offer a day before Turner signed because he was already kind of hearing through the grapevine that he wasn't their first choice. Well, and he also said that, you know, the he had had some conversations with Heim that, you know, he was told that decisions weren't being, you know, hadn't been made, and, um, and they had. Now, a lot of that is standard operating procedure and negotiation teams, you know, as they look at opportunities, as they look at, uh, you know, potential uh, answers to potential spots. Um, you know, they will keep as many players in play as possible, and they won't give final answers. But I do feel like, in J.D. Martinez's case, it would have been the right thing to do for the Red Sox. If they knew internally that they were moving on from him, just tell him. You know, just tell him. If that's what they determined by the end of the 2022 season, I think it would have been best to, you know, to, to, to buy him dinner, take him out, J.D., you've been an amazing pro. We loved having you here, but we need more flexibility out of the D.H. position, which I think a lot of people would have felt would be completely reasonable. Yeah. Buster, that game you're going to see tomorrow is Red Sox-Phillies at noon, right? It's at noon, correct, okay. yes. And that, is that going to be the first game for ESPN on the spring schedule? No. We actually did a game on Monday, and then we had a game yesterday okay. uh, and a game today. It'll actually be the fourth game of four this week. Well, all right. Well, then then pardon my ignorance for not having seen the other game's coverage. So I'm curious then, how is ESPN graphically handling the pitch clock? Because it's been fascinating to me to watch what broadcast teams from around the league are doing. Are we going to see kind of a shot clock style pitch clock in the corner of the score bug? Are we not going to have it at all? What's it look like? Yes, you will have it. Uh, you know, we've had it during the broadcast, and we're going to have it during the regular season. Uh, you know, let's face it, it, it's now as important as the play clock in the NFL, as the, you know, the shot clock in the NBA. There, if you're a viewer and you're, you're trying to digest what's happening on the field, that context is going to be extremely important. And, you know, I've had this conversation with a number of guests that I've had on my podcast in Kirchin. Uh, Boog Shambi, Eduardo Perez, about how players are, uh, you know, feeling about the new rules. My own conversations, I think about two-thirds of the players are very positive about it. Tim Kirchin said it was more like 50-50 for him. Uh, Eduardo said that by the end of the year, he thinks it's going to be 90-10, that he's getting great feedback from guys like Verlander and Scherzer. Boog Shambi estimated 80-20 hmm. uh, positive response. So generally speaking, I think we're, we're seeing the players adapt and, and feel good about the new rules. Well, I'm glad to hear, too, that the, the pitch clock is going to be part of the ESPN scoreboard. And I'm also glad to hear that it's not going to be visible to us 
you know, from the center field camera, because I, I'm sure you saw, I think it was last Friday, that Mariners-Padres game, kind of the first game there was. The scoreboard, or the uh, right behind home plate practically was the pitch clock, and it was rather obtrusive. It, that's not going to be like that during regular broadcasts over the season, I've been told. Yeah, um, and I, I think everyone is scrambling to just <laughs> come up with some of the solutions. And it's not only getting the pitch clocks, but the pitch clock operators. You know, this week is, you know, there have been conversations about, uh, like, the game that ended on a pitch clock violation by the Braves. And the Red Sox, uh, yeah. You know, people unhappy, right, against the Red Sox. People unhappy about that. Look, this first week, the players are learning the new rules, but so are the umpires, and so are the pitch clock operators. It's a whole new time in baseball. Well, it's been fascinating. The Red Sox were on the field today against the Astros, tomorrow against the Phillies. Buster Olney is going to be on the call there with the ESPN team. Buster, look forward to watching that game, look forward to listening to your coverage, and look forward to hearing about your takeaways again uh, next Thursday. That sounds great, Brady. I'm looking forward to it. I'm always looking forward to it as well. That was my talk earlier today with Buster Olney of ESPN. We taped that this morning. Buster obviously was uh, doing some ESPN stuff today, doing ESPN stuff tomorrow. Couldn't be with us. So, uh, hey, I'll, I'll take Buster and TC on the same show anytime. I, I don't usually do two guest shows, but Buster and TC, I'll make some uh, exceptions for that. Buster, very critical of High and Bloom. And Buster has kind of helped shape my thoughts on this situation, right? Like, I like, I like Chaim Bloom. I think I get the plan. I think he's well-spoken. I think he handles the media well. I think he says things that are kind of easy to read. So I, I can appreciate Bloom. What I don't appreciate is him not treating people that deserve respect with respect. And when Matt Barnes says it, it didn't really raise an eyebrow with me, but when Buster says, hey, it's not just Barnes, it's J.D. Martinez, and it's Sandra Bogarts, and it's the Christian Vasquez situation last year, I mean, there's there's an issue there. High and Bloom has got to become a better people person because this is not fantasy baseball. The game is not played on spreadsheets. The game is not played behind your computer desk. You have to be in the relationship business, and High and Bloom is not always in that, and that is a problem. And that is a disappointing development. The guy who is at the forefront of your organization, who is your most forward-facing person when it comes to dealing with players, has got to be able to relate to players, to converse with players, and to give players the appropriate amount of respect. Other things that are interesting out of Buster, the whole Duran thing. The Jared Duran situation is a very interesting one for the Red Sox. He has had a good spring. And now what? Because to Buster's point, Buster says there's a path to him making this team. I don't know what it is right now. You've got Duvall, Verdugo, Yoshida. You've got Ref Snyder. Does Duran slot in still? Maybe Rob Ref Snyder came up an infielder. Maybe Rob Ref Snyder takes over the utility infielder's role and Jaron Duran becomes your fourth outfielder. I don't, I don't know. Maybe that is the path, but I'm fascinated to see how this outfield battle plays out. And now Duran's going to go off to the World Baseball Classic and play for Team Mexico, and we'll see what that does to him. Does he play great and it buoys his chances because the Red Sox say he played well in meaningful moments against good competition? Or does it hurt him because he's not there every day to do it in front of them? I don't know. But we'll find out. The outfield battle is interesting, and I mean, Buster says, oh, Cora will play the best players. Would Alex Cora want to run out three lefties? Would he want to bench Adam Duvall? Would he want to 
get rid of Rep Snyder entirely? I don't know. We'll see. But the Red Sox outfield battle is interesting. We'll give you the latest as we come down to the wire of the UVM women's basketball game. Tell you what's happening in the America East Conference Tournament. The quarterfinals. First round for the Cats. They're the number one seed. They were on the ropes in the fourth quarter. We'll tell you what's happening next on DEV. The Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. I'm going to tell you a story. All right, welcome back. Brady Farkas Show here on WDEV. We're presented by Fecto Homes. We're going up until 7 o'clock. Then it's jazz with George Thomas. And then that's on for one hour. And then it's high school basketball tonight. Girls Hoops Division Two semifinals at the Barry Auditorium. It is being played between Fairhaven and Spalding and what should be a pretty good matchup. So the UVM women's basketball team, first round of the America East Tournament, the quarterfinals, they are going to win this game. The Cats are up. 56 to 49 with six seconds left. They are going to win this game. That said, this one's a little too close for comfort. Now, I think this is where the nerves play in. I didn't think UVM would have nerves coming into it. I don't think they had nerves throughout the first half. I think when Bryant started to make a run in the second half, I think it, I think this team tightened up a little bit. But it is it's understandable, right? It's new to them. They haven't finished out games in the tournament before. They haven't played with that with this, you know, played without this pressure before. 60-56-49 is your score right now. As for how this game is broken down, Catherine Gilby leads the way with 12 points for the Cats, 10 from Emma Utterback. Gilby has been huge in this second half. I've been watching the game. I have not listened to any of the game. I've had the game on kind of uh, you know, on one eye here, so I'm not a full-blown expert on this game. But Gilby's hit a couple of threes here in this half. She struggled overall from three today, just three of ten, but a couple of them have come in this second half. Utterback has not scored at all in this second half. Olsen uh, hasn't, uh, you know, Olsen has just six points in this game as well. So, I mean, you know, UVM women is not are not getting the performance they typically do from their stars. That's why they only have 56 points. But I will say in the fourth quarter, Bryant got it down to within three. It was 46 to 43. Bryant got it to within three, and then UVM was able to respond. So they were, I do think they tightened up, but they were able to take the punches and get the game back under control. Again, they are up 56 to 49. Three, two, one shot up. Bryant misses game over. Cats on to the semifinals. So good job for Lisa Kresge and her team. It was closer than we wanted it to be. I said win it by double figures and I'll be happy. They win it by seven. Let's hope now the nerves are out. My guess is they won't be because you're still going to be at home and you're still going to be the favorite in the next round, but you can't lose as the number one seed. I do think there is some inherent pressure that comes with being the number one seed to not lose that first game. The Cats are on to the next round. Good for them. Tomorrow, we're going to talk with uh, Dylan Penn, by the way, of the men's team. Looking forward to talking with him. It'll be my first time talking with Dylan Penn all season. Uh, Texter says on the Red Sox, Duran has done this the last two years. He's torn up the – this is Roger from Middlebury. Duran has uh, done this the last two years. He's tore up the minors, got to the majors, and been a huge bust. I say trade him. That is also an interesting point, and I mentioned that with Buster, too. If Jaron Duran plays well the rest of the spring slash World Baseball Classic now, do the Red Sox trade him? 
if they say there's not a path to him on this roster? Do they just trade him? Now, I don't think a team in contention would give up anything of real value for him. But a team like the A's, a team like the Reds, a team like the Pirates, a team that's on a different part of the Royals, maybe they'll take a guy, you know, with five, six years of team control left and give you something or give you another prospect. I don't know. But someone out there will want Duran and be willing to take Duran if he was playing well. But I just don't know what the Red Sox want to do here. I don't. I wish I had a better handle on this, but I don't. If he makes the team, I think it's probably because Ref Snyder is going to be a utility infielder and a guy who can play the outfield too. He could be AAA depth. He could be trade P, trade bait. Heck, Buster says he could start if he's playing well. I, I don't know that I see a path to him starting. I think Adam Duvall is a guy that this team brought in for a reason, and I think they would like to stick with him, but see what happens. Uh, Celtics are taking on the Cavaliers tonight at the Garden, 7.30. It's that game about a half hour from now, 40 minutes from now. Should be a pretty good one. Obviously, we know the Cavs are good with a lot of good pieces there, including Donovan Mitchell and a team that's in squarely in the race in the Eastern Conference. They're a top six seed right now in the East. Uh, the UVM women's hockey team is a half hour away from getting on the ice. They're in the Hockey East semifinals against Providence College. Winner goes to the finals. Uh, UVM women have never been to the NCAA tournament. They've been, they're ranked number 11 right now nationally. Just because they're ranked 11th does not mean they are a given for the NCAA tournament. So they got to win this game. They got to win this game in order to help better their chances of getting a, a bid to the tournament. So good luck to Jim Plumer and his team. Exciting times all around the state. All the high school stuff, all the college stuff. Feel bad for the Norwich men that they're out of the hockey tournament, but the Norwich women are still in. So good stuff. All around. Thanks to Tom Karen. Thanks to Buster Olney. We're on tomorrow. We're only on for 45 minutes. The reason being is that we've got early high school basketball action tomorrow, early playoff action. We will talk with UVM Hooper Dylan Penn. He'll be on with us tomorrow at 545. Go download the podcast. There's great stuff there. Tom Karen, Freddie Coleman, Buster Olney. All those interviews are up. They're all live online. You can go check them all out at uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or WDEVradio.com. Jazz with George Thomas is next. This has been the Brady Farkas Show, brought to you by Fecto Home.